It is good to be together. I don't know about you, but, but every time the calendar rolls around to another year, I get focused on, on resolutions. I go on a bit of a kick. What, what, what should I do? What's going to be new next year that wasn't this year? And I think, I think I'm not the only one. Perhaps you have done this a little bit too. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, we probably need to do it more often than every calendar year. Maybe I should get like a physical calendar and every time I flip the thing, I say, what's next month, right? But it's good that we look at the next season. We look forward to what may be and what might come and what, uh, if any, changes we need to make. One article I was reading this week about New Year's resolutions, the author said something like this. He said, you know, every year I make a list of all the things that I want to change. I'm going to stick to a budget this year. I'm going to work out five times a week. I'm going to read my Bible every day. And when I get done with that list, he says, I'm a little bit jealous of that guy who's going to be there at the end of the year. Anyone identify with that? I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to January 1st, 2021, Sean, and he's got a lot of things going for him if he sticks to all those resolutions. Unfortunately, we know that 80% of resolutions don't make it into February, and only 8% of resolutions that are made actually last for the year. Well, as we consider what the, the new you or new me might look like, for the next few weeks, I want us to consider the most important change we can make in our lives. It's not more exercise. It's not a tighter budget. It's not more time with family and friends, as important and good as all those things are. But the most important change we can make in our lives is to be made new in our faith. Now, we all have a faith. We are all trusting in something or someone for for meaning and value and purpose and identity. We're all looking to someone or something to answer the biggest questions of life. How did we get here? Why are we here? Where are we going? What's the problem? How do we fix the problem? And so for the next three weeks, we're going to consider what it means to, to come to Jesus, to put our faith in him and to allow him to transform our lives and, and see how that transformation, the one with and through Jesus, is the foundation for every other change we want and need to make in our lives. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open up to John chapter 3 with me. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's some in the middle of the room. I didn't write down the page number of where John 3 is, so you'll have to find it yourselves, I'm sorry. The book of John is, our, is the fourth of the biographies that we have of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our New Testament. And many scholars believe that it was written uh, the latest of the four Gospels, somewhere around the, the end of the first century. This gospel is attributed to John, the disciple, one of Jesus' closest friends during his time on earth. And so as we parachute into John chapter 3, we're going to look at an interaction between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus, a guy with with high standing in the Jewish world. And we're going to see through their conversation, we're going to pull out that that, that Jesus' death and burial and resurrection offers us a chance to to be born again, to be made new in the Spirit. So let me start reading for us. John chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 down to verse 8 for now. John records this for us. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's stop here and consider for a minute this, this conversation, this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now this concept that we're talking about this morning that's, that starts here of being, of being born again is one of the, the greatest biblical concepts. And yet as one writer says, it has been stolen and emptied of its meaning and dragged through the mire so that today born again can mean almost anything or nothing. He cites uh, celebrities claiming to be born again but not changing their lives at all. He cites a, a study in Forbes magazine that, that highlights the, the top 10 or top 20 born-again companies that have seemed to have just taken a shift and are doing really well. But he says, we need to rescue this concept and return it to its proper place. And this is a great text to help us with that. Now, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a serious guy. And you can kind of see that in his literalism as he asked Jesus, can you, can you enter the womb a second time? The Pharisees were the ones who, who made the laws around the laws around the laws around the law. They were the ones that set up fence after fence to protect themselves and the people from breaking God's law. We read that Nicodemus himself was a ruler of the Jews, which suggests that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 sort of top authorities who had jurisdiction over every Jew on the planet. And further, in verse uh, 10, which we'll get to in a minute, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, which may actually suggest that Nicodemus was considered the greatest teacher in Jerusalem. And so when we consider that, we consider this interaction we have, what we have is a a well-educated, well-thought-of ruler from the the upper end of society coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness, and, and light and dark are a huge theme in the Gospel of John. But he comes in darkness with earnestness to find answers to some of these most important questions. I would encourage you to continue to read through the Gospel of John. And we see Nicodemus, we see his name pop up a few more times. And we see in chapter 7 and 19 that, that he actually became a follower of Jesus. And so he is a great case study, if you will, of, of, of learning the essentials for this life change, this, this salvation, this rescuing work of Jesus. So let's jump in. A couple things we should notice. First in verse 2 and 3, uh, Jesus comes, or Nicodemus, excuse me, comes to Jesus respectfully, face to face. He calls him rabbi, which is a, an important, honored title. And he comes uh, prepared to exchange philosophical ideas with Jesus. But Jesus would have known who Nicodemus was, knows his ability, knows what he's, his education level, knows all these things. And, and he says, you know what? We don't need to just dance around with philosophy here. Let's go straight at the heart of this thing. Let's go right to the deepest level. And Jesus comes out and said, no, let's talk about being born again. Jesus was not here trying to flex his own muscles, his own teaching muscles to talk over the head of Nicodemus. One commentator says, When Jesus turned to talk about being born again, Nicodemus knew exactly what was going on because uh, the rabbis of the day had a saying that a proselyte or or a convert who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. This idea was there. The concept was there. Nicodemus had a category in his mindset and education for this this new birth thing because they believed all things were thought to be completely new 
when one came to the Jewish faith. The second thing we notice is that, again, Nicodemus came to Jesus earnest to engage in these deepest thoughts. A lot of the, the confrontations Jesus has with Pharisees or teachers of the law, they're, they're, they're hostile. But this one doesn't seem that. When he asked Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? In verse 4, he's not being curt or sarcastic, or he's not suggesting some kind of a crude gynecological miracle, as one writer suggests, but he's expressing a sense of longing. He's saying, Jesus, uh, you talk about being born again. You talk about new life. You talk about this radical, fundamental change that's so necessary. And I know it's necessary, but the question I have is how? There's nothing I would like more than to to be made new. And I think in that way, Nicodemus speaks for all of us, in a sense, doesn't he? We all, I think, have this stirring in our hearts that something isn't right. That's the, the, the reason we make New Year's resolutions. We desire change for us, for those around us, maybe especially for our own hearts. Sometimes we desire a massive overhaul. Sometimes it's just incremental, just, just little tweaks. I, I just need a little bit something different here. We want to be different. We know that we're not where we should be. We're not as, as, as good or, or the, in the right spot that we were supposed to be. We want new minds. We desire this new birth. We want renewal. So Jesus answers in verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now again, this wasn't talking over Nicodemus at all. Nicodemus would have understood what Jesus meant. He knew that Jesus' cousin, John the, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, was baptizing people with water as a symbol of their inward repentance. And in John's gospel, we find this just after the text we're in today, in verse 23 of chapter 3. And so Ken Hughes, who's a pastor and commentator, helpfully notes this for us. When Jesus said this, what flashed across Jesus' mind was, unless you're born of all that water baptism signifies, which is repentance and that you're born of all that spirit baptism accomplishes, which is regeneration, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus saw very clearly that no one is born again if there is no repentance. And along with repentance comes the work of the spirit in the heart. These are the non-negotiables of being born again. Repentance and regeneration. And we're going to look more at the regeneration piece next week in the series. And we're going to look deeper at the repentance peak the week after that uh, when Russ Wilson from the AGC joins us on the 19th. But Kent Hughes continues. He says, repentance, it also involves a change of mind. When there's repentance, there's, there's a change of action coupled with a change of mind. It's not simply a new direction. It's not simply an about face. It's not education. It's not just a religious experience. He says, and he asks the question, did you know that being born again is not merely asking Jesus into your heart? If that happens without repentance, it will not bring regeneration and new life. So being born again is a a radical change that takes place in a person's life whereby through repentance and a work of the spirit, he or she is given a new nature. Paul kind of sums this up for us as well in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where he says, Therefore, if anyone who, anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus further explains this radical change that needs to take place. He says, That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And don't, don't marvel that I say this to you, that you must be born again. 
Going further, Jesus challenges and says that, that we in our flesh cannot accomplish this on our own. That, that all our human efforts are merely that, human. We need the Spirit to do a work in us. So as we keep reading John 3, we see Nicodemus ask the question that, that may be on all of our minds right now. Look at verse 8. He says, verse, sorry, verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony? If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now again, Nicodemus asks a great question here. How on earth is this going to happen, Jesus? How can this be? He's saying, listen, I get the analogy, Jesus. I'm, I'm tracking with you so far. I have, a, I have the capacity, I have the understanding, I have the categories for what you're talking about. But what does it mean? How does the new birth happen? What do you mean the spirit's behind us? What does it look like in our lives? And Jesus skillfully works towards the answer here, doesn't he? Starting with a nice, gentle rebuke. You're, you're the teacher in Israel, but you don't get these things? You've got all this wisdom, all this human learning, but you don't understand? And then Jesus works his way down to verse 13 saying, listen, no one, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended, the Son of Man. He's saying, listen, my authority, my understanding, the, the way I'm teaching this, my, my ability to speak about these things come from the fact that I'm the one that's come down from heaven. I am that Son of Man. And then from here, Jesus launches into probably the best illustration from the Old Testament about what this new birth means and, and the dynamics behind this spiritual life. And we're going to look at it in three different ways, or three parts, rather. First, let's consider the great illustration of the cross. In verse 14, Moses teaching says, as, or, sorry, Jesus' teaching said, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you've got a Bible, flip back to near the beginning in Numbers chapter 21. Jesus takes Nicodemus on a little history lesson here, going back a couple thousand years. Now, if we're in Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9, we read this account of the people of Israel who have been, who have been rescued from Egypt, who have been exodused from Egypt and are on their way to the promised land. And as we see time and time again, they are grumbling at God and Moses in the desert. They say to Moses, why have you brought us out of slavery in Egypt just to die in the wilderness? There's no food or water here. Actually, there is food or water, but we loathe this worthless food. They're in this place where they have seen God work. They've, they've seen God draw them out of Egypt. They've seen God lead them through the Red Sea. They've seen God lead them by a pillar of fire and by a cloud at night. They've seen God uh, make their sandals not wear out. They've seen God give them food every single morning. And they say, 
why have you brought us out here? We should just let us die back there. There's no food or water. Actually, God is providing, but we don't like that. So then we read that God sent fiery serpents. And, and scholars believe that, that these weren't like fire-spitting serpents, which would be kind of terrifying and actually kind of cool. But they were called fiery serpents because their bite caused a, a burning fever, which would lead to death if it was unchecked. And the people realized that, that these snakes were now in the camp because, because of their rebellion, because of their, their criticism, their grumbling against God. God had, in a sense, removed a bit of his protection from them. And they were being judged by their distrust in God. They recognize this and they say to Moses as the text continues, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. So pray to the Lord that he take these serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if one of the fiery serpents bit anyone, he or she would look at this bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole, and then live. Now remember, Jesus is having a conversation with one of the top teachers in all of Israel. So Nicodemus would have been perfectly familiar with the story Jesus takes him back to. And Jesus lives, leaves absolutely no doubt about the application when he says in verse 14, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, so must I be lifted up. He reminds Nicodemus of this picture of, of, of people dying because of their sin and Moses lifting up the serpent on the, on the stake and people looking to that serpent and being healed. And he says, this is what's going to happen. This is a, a, a dying and sinful world and, and the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross to save you. The atoning cross raised high. The details of the, the numbers analogy are remarkable here. The, the snakes are a symbol of sin. In fact, they're the perfect symbol of sin. Because if we go right back to Genesis 3, we see that it was a serpent that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, which brought sin into the world. And because of that serpent, because of that sin entered the world, all of our very nature has been polluted by sin. In Romans 3, Paul quotes the Psalms and says, no one is righteous. No, not one. And then we see that, that it was the likeness of a serpent lifted up on a pole. It's significant that, that Moses elected not to use an actual serpent, but rather a symbol. And so this symbol then pointed us forward towards Jesus, who became our sin, who became the serpent, if you will, for us. Romans 8.3, Paul writes, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.21 adds, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Galatians 3.13, Paul continues and says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The beautiful thing here is that Jesus is telling us that, that new birth comes through a simple gaze of faith, not perfect faith which is encouraging to me because I know my faith wavers. Maybe you've thought about following Jesus, but haven't yet because you don't have a perfect faith. Because you don't have uh, enough faith. You're trying to work it up. I hope this text is encouraging to you too. Have you ever thought, I want to believe. I, I see these Christians over here and they seem to have something and I want what they have, but, but I just don't have enough faith. I don't have, I'm not good enough. I'm not there yet. Consider the Israelites as well. 
Back in the book of Numbers, they had doubts, they procrastinated, they overthought things, they rationalized everything. Not everyone had the same quality of belief. But there came a time when they looked to the serpent. And there comes a time when we realize that we want to change and we need to change, that we look at Jesus. Jesus follows up the great illustration of the cross with the great explanation of the cross. Maybe you've heard this verse before, John 3.16. Martin Luther called it the gospel in miniature. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is one we actually probably all know. Probably seen referenced many times. It's probably one of those verses too that we will never fully mine the depths of. John 3.16 shows us the greatness of God's love. It shows us that God's love is a, a vast, unbounded, bottomless sea that we can immerse ourselves into. This is the heart of the gospel too. The heart of the gospel isn't just that God is love, which is 100% true, but the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave. The root of this new birth that Nicodemus and Jesus are talking about, this, this new birth, new life, abundant life, uh, eternal life, they come through the overflowing, unbounded love of God. And that's what God so loved the world means. And this great love brings for us a great result that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And let me tell you, that is a good trade. Death for life. And the condition, whoever believes, whoever, whoever looks to Jesus, we receive when we believe. I came across this kind of breakdown of uh, John 3.16, and it's going to go on the screens. Hopefully it's as, as uh, impactful there as, as it is in front of me and in the book that I founded in this week. Breaking down John 3.16 for us, it says that, that God, who is the greatest lover, God so loved, he, he loved to the greatest degree, God so loved the world, the greatest company. God so loved the world that he gave in this greatest act. He gave his only son the greatest gift. That whoever, being the greatest opportunity, whoever believes the greatest simplicity, whoever believes in him the greatest attraction, whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the greatest promise we have. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but the greatest difference they should not perish, but they should, but have, we can have the greatest certainty. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, the greatest possession. In him, we have everlasting, eternal, abundant life. Finally, after Jesus gives the great, greatest illustration and the great explanation, we have the great necessity of the cross. Look again with me at verses 17 and 18. As we were talking before the first service, uh, Vern reminded me that you cannot have verse 16 without verse 17. You can't pull those things apart. They're so important that they fit together. Verse 17, Jesus says, For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus did not come to the world with the express purpose to judge it, but to save it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, the text says. But that doesn't mean that judgment doesn't come through him. And it does. 
There's this dynamic process that we see and Jesus talks about it in the last few verses, verses 19 through 20. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. He said, I've, I've come. And again, we, we see light and darkness as a huge theme in John's gospel. We, we see it in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 here. And again, we see the, the fact that Nicodemus came in darkness. Some are saying, well, was it actually nighttime or was he just it, metaphorically in darkness? He didn't understand these things. It, it's a massive theme. That Jesus is the light of the world. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come. But the people love their darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. Because their works opposed God. How we respond to the light shows us how we relate to that new birth Jesus has promised us through the Spirit. And so the most important question we can ask is how do you respond to the light? When you look at Jesus and all that we hear and see about Jesus, whether it's in the text, which is where we should go to to find out about Jesus, or when we, when we interact with what the world says about Jesus and his followers, do we see Jesus as the one bringing hope? Or on the flip side, do you see Christianity or, or followers of Jesus and following Jesus just a bunch of, of rules that no one can keep anyways? And those people who claim to follow Jesus, they don't keep them anyways, so why should I be a part of them? And, and they just fight amongst themselves about chair colors and carpet colors and whatever else and useless things. And I have enough fighting in my life, so why would I want to be a part of that? How do you respond to the light? When you see the light, when you see Jesus in the text... Do you see the overflowing, unbounded love of, for God so loved the world that he gave? I appreciate as well how Kent Hughes wraps this section up. He says, we've been talking about what it means to be born again. We've been kind of sitting under Nicodemus's question of how can these things be? And we've seen the supreme illustration that that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We see the atonement, God, Jesus taking our place. We've seen the greatest explanation for all of this, that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have have eternal life. And we see that that this atonement, this, this forgiveness, this new life, this new birth is possible because of God's great love. And so how, how can we make the single most important change in our lives for 2020? Again, it's not elevation gains at EP. It's not more coffee dates. It's not more whatever. It's through our belief in Christ alone. It's to looking at his work for us on the cross And when we do that, we actually, we give up our dependence on ourselves. We give up resting on our own intellect or cleverness. We give up working ourselves and and resting on our own self-discipline, our own effort, our own plans of becoming more religious and reading more and, and doing bad things less and whatever else. And we look to the cross. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for a new year. Thank you that, for better or worse, changing the calendar from 2019 to 2020 makes us look at life and see what we may need to change coming forward. Again, it might be that that massive overhaul. It might be just some subtle shifts, things we'd like to to add or or remove from our our day-to-day life. I pray, though, that as we consider this text of John 3, that that we we would lean into this idea of new birth. That each of us would, would desire that more. Those who have, who have followed Jesus for a long time, that we would we'd lean deeper into the love of Christ in this passage. Maybe uh, if you're here and you haven't uh, 
wanted to follow Jesus before, you haven't experienced this new birth, and you're, you, you've thought, I, I don't have it all together. I don't know the answers. I, I, don't, I can't find the spot in my Bible. I can't do whatever else. I, I don't know anything about this. That, Jesus says, look to me. Maybe that's the first step. And you can just pray a simple prayer like, Jesus, I'm looking for you. Where are you? Show me who you are. Let me learn more. I, I want this new birth. I, I, want to, I want to repent and I want the Holy Spirit to work in me and regenerate me and, and make me new. I want that, that new birth. I know that all my resolutions are probably going to be finished by the end of the month anyways. But this one, Jesus, help me. Let it stick. Jesus, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you came to show us how to rightly relate with God and with creation, with one another. Thank you that you went to the cross to become sin for us, to take all our sin, our rebellion, the way that we've gone our own way. You've, you've taken the, the consequences and, and pay, payment for that on yourself. That you, you, you died on the cross for us, but that's not the end of the story, that you were raised three days later, conquering Satan, sin, and death, so that now we can be grafted back into the family of God and be called children of God, that we can be made clean, we can cling to your righteousness instead of our own works. We can let the Spirit work in and through us because of your work, not ours. And I pray that you would give us a, a new understanding and a new experience of that every single day. We love you. Thank you for this text, for this time we had together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.